All right. Well, this is the last in this series that we're doing. Again, we had first and second Thessalonians. We considered much of the rapture and the tribulation. And then over the last week, uh, we looked at uh, looked back again at the second coming and the millennial reign. And then tonight we'll consider uh, the new heaven and a new earth. And uh, as I read for us there at the beginning of Revelation 21, we get insight there into, again, all the revelation here is the revelation that's being given to John. John interacts for the most part with an angel uh, throughout the last part of Revelation, but also has interactions with Jesus, glorified and, and risen Lord. And uh, much of the time as he is saying, he... Uh, and, 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 and writing down and recording what he sees him doing. He's referencing Jesus. And as we read there, we, we read of Jesus declaring uh, what is going to happen. And uh, tonight, as we look at Revelation 21 and 22, we see at the beginning here, really through the bulk of uh, chapter 21 all the way into chapter 22 in verse 5, we see really a description of the new heaven and the new earth, uh, the New Jerusalem, uh, even specifics, measurements of the New Jerusalem. As always with, with Revelation, and I'll mention this probably a couple of times uh, throughout our evening, is, is that there are people who will say this is just uh, metaphorical, this is allegorical, these are symbols, this isn't literal. Uh, as you hopefully have gathered by now, we take a very literal approach to the entirety of Scripture, but even Revelation. Now that's not to say necessarily that I have absolute confidence that when we get to heaven, the New Jerusalem will be the exact measurements as what we see here in Scripture. It is possible, certainly, that there is an aspect of, of symbolism here, that maybe it's, it's just to speak to the significance of the size of that new city. But I have no reason to think that. I have no reason to suggest that it would be anything but what Scripture tells us, right? So we do take an approach where it says, well, this, if it says it's going to be uh, this many cubits, then I'm assuming it's going to be this many cubits, and that's, a, that's not a symbol. Um, and so we have measurements of this new city that believers will live in for all of eternity. And some of you, as you hear that, you may think, I don't want to live in a city. I'm a country boy or girl. I, um, rest assured when we get to that part and we consider the, the, the scope and the size of what it is that God has prepared for us, uh, you'll find that this is a much greater uh, city than you've probably ever even considered before. Uh, but also that remember, as we, as we think about what God has in store for us, we must remember that it's good. And not just good, but, but better. We may not be able to grasp all of what God has for us. We may not be able to, in, in our limited understanding, truly see things the, the way that it's described or understand it fully, but to trust and to know that it's good, that what God has in store for us is absolutely incredible and, and, and beyond our wildest expectations. And so, um, so here we are now in the last two chapters of the Bible. The last two, we're at the end of the Bible, which captures the end of time. That place, that point when time will be no more which is also pretty incredible to think about. That in eternity, time is somewhat irrelevant. Um, and uh, before we consider, I think, much of the significance of the new heaven and the new earth, I think it's important for us to remember 
and review how, how do we get there? What happens as we arrive at this point? And so we're going to go through some of the visuals that we considered last week. I might touch on a couple of, of pieces of scripture uh, in this review here, but a lot of it's just going to be kind of reviewing what we believe about how these events are going to unfold. And so, so remember, <clears throat> much of our understanding of eschatology of the end times and how it will unfold uh, is given to us through revelation, but then looking also at Daniel and the prophecies that were made in Daniel. In, in Daniel, and specifically in Daniel chapter 9, we get insight into the 70 weeks of Daniel, right? And 69 of those 70 year periods or 70 weeks as it's referred to have already uh, been completed one week is the equivalent of seven years and so you see there that up until the ascension of christ which commences the church age um, we have 483 years that have gone by okay we are now living in the church age this is the time in which uh, is between jesus's ascension into heaven and uh, his or the rapture of the church where he takes his bride uh, to be with him in heaven. So we're in the church age right now. Then we believe that the rapture will occur, which then commences the time of the tribulation, which is a seven-year period, which is that final seven-year period, giving us a total of 77-year period. So we have one remaining. That's the time of the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, then, we have his glorious second coming, different than the rapture. Remember, when Jesus comes for his church at the time of the rapture, he doesn't come in appearance to all of the world. He comes for his church. He doesn't actually come to the earth. We meet him uh, in the heavens, and we go back to heaven with him. So the, his glorious second coming is that his, his first coming was when he was born on this earth, uh, the incarnate Lord. And his second coming is when he returns to earth, and that's at the time of Armageddon, the church coming with him. Okay, And then that kicks off the kingdom age, which is the millennial reign or that thousand-year period. Once again, as I've already stated, we believe in the literal interpretation of Scripture. And so, as it says six times in Revelation 20, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. Um, and so that is that thousand-year period, which at the end of that thousand-year period, and we'll consider some of this in a little bit more detail here shortly, comes the rebellion once again. Satan rebels. Some follow. And we then have the great white throne judgment. And we go into the time of the new heaven and the new earth. And when we go into the new heaven and new earth here in Revelation 21 and 22, as it's described, it's, it's done at that point. Okay, there's, there's no more, Satan's not coming back. There's not going to be another rebellion. There's, there's, there's nothing else that needs to happen. That will be that point when all is made new and we will uh, enter into that period of eternity that will be absolute uh, perfection. Okay, so let's look at a couple of things here that are really key. I mean, you have the whole timeline there, and there is... There are aspects of that that I think all believers would agree with, but certainly not, certainly not all of it, particularly as it relates to the rapture. There's different views, if, as you recall, on the rapture. There's different views on the kingdom age, the millennial reign. From a rapture perspective, we teach and believe that we have a pre-tribulational rapture. Okay, 
Um, there's actually, we talk a lot in terms of the different views of the rapture, saying there are th- often three. There's actually a fourth view of the rapture that we don't often consider that I'll mention um, just for the sake of understanding here tonight. So we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, meaning that the rapture happens before the time of the tribulation. So we believe there is, you see the rapture going up is right before the tribulation, pre-trib, okay? And that is a rapture of all believers at that time. Those who have died in Christ, those who are alive in Christ. Not the Old Testament saints, but only those who have died and are alive since the coming of Christ. There is a view, and we don't talk about this one very often, of a partial rapture, which is also pre-tribulational, but it's only but people believe that it's only those who are truly dedicated believers. Those who are on fire, sold out for Christ, living for Him. Like if you look at their life, it's like, man, there's, there's fruit in their life. And that it would only be those who are raptured. And that the sort of lukewarm Christians, that they get to hang around for a little while. And experience part of the tribulation. Just because they need it. Right? That's basically what the view suggests. is like, you need a little bit more refining in your life. You're not where I'm at yet. <laughs> Why don't you hang around for half of the period of the tribulation? We don't talk about that one very often because there's not many people that believe in a partial rapture view. There's then, of course, the mid-trib rapture where um, it's exactly as it sounds, that the church is raptured much like I teach or we believe, um, but in the middle of the tribulation, so halfway through, so the believers experience the first half of the tribulation, not the second half, which for all intents and purposes is a much worse half. Uh, The great wrath of God is poured out there in the second half. And then there are those who believe in a post-tribulation rapture, which is at the end of that seven years, meaning that Christians will go through the duration of the tribulation. Not going to go back through all of that. We've considered that before. Um, but you know, one of the key texts that we look at is uh, where it says that we are not appointed to wrath, right? That we have been redeemed. That we are the bride of Christ. And as we looked at last week and considered the traditional historic view of a Jewish marriage, we can see the elements of that Jewish marriage process from the betrothal to the groom coming for the bride to taking him to his father's house. And all of those steps really align well with a pre-tribulational rapture view where the church, the bride, has come, uh, the groom comes for her at a time when it's unknown, it's a surprise, uh, takes her back to his father's house, that place that he has prepared for her, period of seven days there that leads up to the marriage supper. And so we see a wonderful parallel in the Jewish marriage to a pre-tribulational rapture view, okay? So there's a quick review on the rapture. And then we go into, uh, from the rapture, you have the time of the tribulation, seven years. That's when the Antichrist is at work, the false prophet. Um, uh, and and we've, we go back several weeks um, to our study in First and Second Thessalonians to consider some of the details there. At the end of the tribulation, then, we have the millennium. The millennium, as I mentioned, is that thousand-year period where Jesus rules on earth. And, and the primary purpose of that millennial reign is so that Israel can occupy the land and experience the fulfillment of both the Davidic and the Abraham to a forever throne. Uh, Israel has never experienced uh, full inhabitation of the land that was promised to them, nor have they experienced the, the righteous rule uh, of of Jesus on the throne. Okay, and so that's what's accomplished during the millennial reign. Now, there are three views 
of the millennium. So pre-millennialism, this is what we teach, okay? This is, this is what the, the view that Calvary Chapel holds to. Pre-millennialism is a literal 1,000-year reign, okay? Literal 1,000 years, where Christ's second coming, as you see there, is before the millennial reign. Okay, so you've got the church age, you've got the tribulation, then you have the second coming, the time of the millennium, great white throne, as I mentioned earlier, and then all of eternity, a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, so pre-trib, pre-millennial, that's what we hold to. But there are two other views that are, that are held um, by some related to the millennium. If we go to the next one, this is the amillennial view. Okay, the amillennial view uh, says that there is no literal future thousand-year reign. That though it says thousand years, that it is figurative, and really, what it looks like, what it looks at here is from the ascension of Christ, which commences the church age, to the second coming, that good and evil. So if you see there, church age, millennium, good and evil will continue to uh, increase until his coming and judgment. What that means is someone that holds to an amillennial view does not believe that there will be a rapture. And again, doesn't believe that there's a literal thousand years. Um, that basically we are in that millennial time now and that good and evil are sort of parallel and will just continue. So good's going to continue to increase. Evil's going to continue to increase. Eventually Christ will come back and judge. And then there is the, when there's the post-millennial view, all right, the post-millennial view um, is similar to the amillennial view in that they do not believe in a literal thousand years. The difference here is more about uh, progress and the role of the church in ushering in the second kingdom. So the post-millennial view views Christ's kingdom as ongoing, as progressing throughout the earth uh, by people preaching the gospel. And uh, that the, the current church age that we live in is really that millennial period. So again, not literal. And as the church continues to progress and share the truth of the gospel, and it becomes more and more pervasive throughout society, that uh, Jesus will choose at a particular time to come back based off of essentially the progress that's been made. I think, again, that one stands out quite significantly for a lot of people in terms of like, well, gosh, we're really going in the wrong direction then. Like, how much longer is it going to be, right? That would be the natural question for somebody to ask as it relates to a post-millennial view is, if we're responsible for ushering in the kingdom, if there's supposed to be a, a, a progression, if you will, even though, yes, the gospel is going forth and we're seeing revival happen throughout the world, certainly it doesn't seem as if this world's getting a whole lot better. Um, and that puts a whole lot of uh, trust and confidence in man, really, to bring about Christ's return. Um, the amillennial view uh, is a newer view than is the premillennial view. Premillennial view, I would say, is, is, it goes back the, the, the furthest to the early church. But the amillennial view is one that's probably held a good bit more today, especially within Reformed uh, circles. Premillennial, though, is really the literal approach. So you can debate what you want about your views or, or how people read certain things. And, and certainly many people are very convinced on their particular views, but I, I don't think it's very debatable to say that the pre-tribulational rapture view with a pre-millennial second coming uh, is the most literal view when we just take Scripture uh, in terms of what Scripture says. So what does the transition then 
from the second coming to the millennium look like? I want us to consider that for a moment. We've got a slide up here. This says here, from the judgment into the millennium. Second coming, okay? So what's the second coming? Jesus is coming back, right? This is glorious second coming. Is this the rapture? No. It's his second coming, right? The rapture is not his coming. It's, it's him getting us. So his second coming at the end of the tribulation, right here, okay? So the tribulation has all happened here. Now we've come to this place where Jesus has come back, battle of Armageddon, sword from his mouth, one word, boom, everybody's done. He's ruling. And we're now going to go into the time of the millennium. Now here's something we haven't considered before just because it was just a lot. I didn't want to go into all these things, okay? <clears throat> Fact is, if you look at Scripture, particularly in Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 12, it gives us insight into the fact that there's a little bit of a gap between his second coming and when the millennial reign starts. It's not immediate. There's actually a gap of about 75 days, and we'll consider that in a moment here. What's happening during that 75 days? All of this. You guys remember where it says in Matthew 25, Jesus says he's going to separate the sheep from the goats? That's what's happening during this period, okay? So that's what you see here. Sheep. Now, is that us? Sort of. Not really. We're sheep. So when you say yes, you're right there. But remember, us, right now, before the rapture, we're with him. That's the second coming, right? So the church is already with him. Who are the sheep and the goats now in this time period? People who went through the tribulation. So when Jesus is talking about separating the sheep and the goats, it's the sheep who are believers, people who have gotten saved during the time of the tribulation, and the goats, unbelievers, okay? Remember, it's only going to be righteous people who are saved who are going to go into the time of the millennium. So there is some judgment to be done here. So when Jesus says he's separating the sheep from the goats, it means I'm deciding here who's going to go into the millennium and who's not. So you've got the sheep who will go into the millennial reign. The millennium begins there. So they'll go into this time, okay? And you've got the goats who go into the lake of fire. The Jews here, his brethren, that's how he refers to them. We see that in Revelation. Because remember, this is, about, this is about the Jewish people inhabiting their land. It's pretty interesting. What we need to understand in terms of eschatology is that Scripture continues to keep a distinction between, between the Jewish people, the Gentile people, and Christians. Even though Paul says there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, right? He's talking in terms of how we've been grafted in, how we've become uh, children of God. But the fact is, from a prophetical perspective, God continues to, to show us three different groups that are considered throughout, throughout the ages, okay? So this, the Jews, is going to probably include the 144,000 that are specifically talked about, but then it even says there's an innumerable number that are saved during the time of the tribulation. So they will enter into this time. So then comes the millennial reign. Now, during the millennial reign, you've got the church, that's us, reigning with Christ. You've got Israel inhabiting the land, and they are head over the sheep, which are the Gentile nations that are brought in. So that's kind of what we see happening in that transitionary period between the second coming and the millennium. Now, I don't want to go too far into this because this is a whole other study in itself, but you can write these verses down. That 75-day interval, okay? If you read in Daniel in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, you're going to see there how um, the 70th week is broken up into two periods. Two periods of three and a half years for a total of seven years. And you see that in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, and it even gives us a specific number of days there 
that really coincides with the coming of Jesus Christ, his second coming. That's in Daniel 9. In Daniel, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, And at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so Daniel here is, is giving insight into the end times. He's aligning this time with Christ's return. If we look a little bit later, though, in Daniel chapter 12, in verse 11, and it says, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. See, this is the interesting thing, and what's amazing about the prophecy that we have in Scripture is that there are times when, when it's, it's very specific, okay? Like in that case here where it says there's going to be 1,290 days. Well, what's that time What's that time coming from in terms of the abomination of desolation? What's that speaking of? So the daily sacrifice is taken away. So remember, at the beginning of the time of the tribulation, the temple is rebuilt. Sacrifices begin to happen. Three and a half years in, yes, you're right, something happens. The Antichrist sets himself up on the throne in the temple. That's the abomination of desolation and ends the sacrificial system. It says, worship me. So what Daniel's saying here is there's going to be 1,290 days. If you go back to the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, which is the prophecy about the time of the tribulation. He says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again in the will and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. If you do the math for that three and a half years, you get a particular number, 1,260 days. When you read in Daniel chapter 11, you see 1,290 days. What that tells us there is there's 30 more days that something is happening here, okay? And then in verse 12, it says, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. You see why I was <laughs> saying it's a whole other study in itself when you look at this. So here's what happens. Okay, let me try and rephrase this a little bit differently. If we look at the second half of the tribulation, that's 1,260 days. Yet here Daniel in his prophecy is telling us that there is 1,290 days and then also says if you, if you endure through the 1,335 days, what that tells us is that there's another, there's a 30-day period and a 45-day period beyond the end of the tribulation that are part of prophecy here. Does that make sense? So for a total of 75 additional days beyond the tribulation, that if you endure until that time, that you shall find rest and will arise to your inheritance. Now that's really the only place that we're given much insight into this timeline. So what we need to understand here is what, what would be happening during that 75-day period. 
Well, if Jesus says in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, here's what I'm going to do. If Ezekiel, in Ezekiel, really through the last 10 chapters of Ezekiel, we read about a temple being established for the time of the millennium. If we read like we do in uh, 2 Peter, as well as in, uh, I think it's Isaiah, 2 Peter and Isaiah 65, yeah, 2 Peter 3, 4 through 14, Isaiah 65, 17 through 20, of uh, the world melting with fervent heat. <clears throat> what we can deduce from that, and again, people will argue about these things, is that there is a process that's happening, there's a transition that's happening from a time of tribulation and great wrath being poured out on the earth to God preparing the world for a thousand-year reign. This is not yet, the millennial age is not yet a new heaven and a new earth, but it seems fitting that the earth that we'll dwell in during this time needs a little bit of renovation, if you will. And so in addition to separating out the sheep from the goats, there's a bit of work that's being done, a time of preparation for the millennial reign. Now, much of that is, of course, speculation based off of different passages of Scripture that we have. But if you look and say, okay, we've, we've got this 75-day period, and we've got these other things that are happening after Christ returns, before we see the millennial reign begin, it seems fitting that they would fit within that 75-day interval, okay? Now, what's happening then during the time? So once the millennial reign begins, we see there kind of how things will be structured during the millennial age. If we go to the next slide we'll see the various events of the millennium. So again, you've got Christ's second coming here, that 75-day period that we just talked about, then the beginning of the millennium. Christ on the Davidic throne, that's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Um, you've got the Abrahamic covenant, which has to do with the land. And remember all the different things we talked about in terms of the time of the millennial reign. We're going to see significant change in the earth as a whole, the environment, uh, deserts turning into lush environments, rain uh, being uh, poured out in abundance upon the earth in a positive way is to, to care for the vegetation. You've got here the lion with the lamb, right? And so uh, nature, creation, animals are going to be different. The curse, if you will, upon the earth is going to be reversed. You've got the millennial temple, so there is a temple that's established. Sacrifices will take place within the temple, not because we're sacrificing for our sins, but like communion. And in those sacrifices, we're remembering Christ as Christ is seated upon the throne. It's pointing people back for a thousand years to what it is that he has done for them. So it's about remembrance, okay? So temple sacrifice is happening. It's going to be an incredible time of peace and prosperity on the earth during this time. But not the entire, not all of the curse has been lifted. The curse upon the earth has been lifted. Death is still there, even though people will live much longer lives because for the most part, sickness and disease and different things um, will not be present during that time. But because people have not been completely restored and glorified through this time, there is still the potential for rebellion, which comes at the end of the millennial reign. What this also shows us, though, is not only that God is a covenant God who fulfills his promises, but that he's gracious and he's merciful, giving people over and over again every opportunity, including the opportunity to see what it's like to live under the glorious reign and righteous reign of Christ. But even then, Satan, being the deceiver that he is, will lead some astray, and that comes at the end of the millennium for the great white throne judgment and the new heaven and the new earth, okay? So then... <clears throat> That, 
then leads us to that place of um, judgment at the end of the millennial reign. So we come to that place in Revelation. If you want, go ahead and look in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. <clears throat> this is where we sort of stopped last time. I think I may have read through it, but we did not. Uh, we didn't consider much of it. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw... And remember, John throughout here is saying, then, then I saw this, then I saw this. And so it very much gives to us a sense of this is sequential. This is the order in which these things are happening. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's consider a couple of things here. Who's who's the judge? God but also known as Jesus, right? Um, in Acts in 17, verse 31, Acts 17, 31, because he was appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, that's God, God will judge, by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, in Acts 17, 31, we get insight into the fact that, yes, God will judge, but he will do so through Jesus, giving proof to this by raising him from the dead. It's Jesus whom he's appointed the right to to judge. In in John, you see that one on the slide there. In John 5.22, in John 5.22 we read, um, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Okay, This is the role that Jesus will play at this time. Um, Again, in in Revelation 20, verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This is at the end of the millennial reign, okay? This is, when you hear about the great white throne judgment, this is it. This is that point when all of the judgment is happening. Yes, there was a, there was a judgment before, prior to the millennial reign, uh, between the, the, the sheep and the goats, separating them out, goats to the lake of fire. Okay, but now, at this particular time, all, all individuals, all those who have died who are unbelievers will be brought before the great white throne judgment. Okay, believers will be brought before a different seat called the Bema seat judgment, judged for our works and given rewards as we go into the eternal state. Okay, so this is unbelievers who are brought before the great white throne judgment. And there you see that there are books there. There are books that are used. Okay, that are spoken of here, and you see the references for these. You've got the book of life, spoken of in Revelation 20:15. just read that. The book of works, of man's works, Revelation 20, 12 through 13. Then you've got the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 21, uh, 27. And then, of course, the law, uh, which is Galatians uh, 3:20. These are the books that are specifically mentioned here at the throne of judgment. The book of life seems to be that book that God has that has every life that was created in it. Okay? Every single person to have ever been created whose name is in the book of life. 
then we also seem to have a separate book, which is the Lamb's Book of Life. The Lamb's Book of Life being that book that contains the name of every believer. Beyond the obvious of what I've just described, what are the difference between those two books, do you think? In this book, it seems that, as I said, every individual who's ever been created whose name is in that book, but yet whose name can then be blotted out. Okay? Whereas the names that are written in this book cannot be blotted out. Okay? That takes you back to really a belief in that once your name's in here, once you're saved, you're always saved. That he won't he won't let Satan snatch you out of his hand. Okay? And there also seems to be a book that really is a record of all man's works. And these, remember, are employed at the great white throne judgment for unbelievers um, as they are then cast into the lake of fire. Okay, <clears throat> So these are all the events, in a nutshell, that transpire prior to what we read in Revelation 21. These are all the different things that are happening. Some of you may ask the question then, man, how, how long is it going to be before I experience a new heaven and a new earth? Long time. <laughs> At least a 1,007 years if all of a sudden we're, we're raptured, right? It's kind of crazy when you think about it that way. Doesn't mean, though, remember, where are we throughout that time? If you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, then when you are raptured, you've got seven years in the throne room of heaven, in the presence of God. You come with him in glory and rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And then judgment happens and we go into a period of a new heaven and a new earth for all of eternity. So listen, from the time of the rapture, life is good. We're just going to experience a lot of different things throughout that time. Okay, Now let's look, and yes, albeit we can move through some of this fairly quickly um, in Revelation 21. I already read for us there in verses 1 through 5. Remember John now sees, uh, it says, he sees a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Okay? Also, there was no more sea. Interesting description that he gives us there. So what this means for us, what we have to understand as we start to read this, is that there is a, a new heaven, new earth. The word new here in the Greek is new of a different kind. Okay, So unlike going into the time of the millennial reign, this is all new. This is brand spanking new. This isn't the same thing, but kind of, you know, rebuilt or renovated this is new of a different kind this is something brand new that's coming the implication here then is that there has been a destruction of heaven and earth okay what we oftentimes miss is that scripture gives us insight into the fact that there are three destructions of the earth and the heavens what's the first destruction it's already happened the flood right the flood now when the flood waters receded and the rainbow came out, what, did, what, was the, what was the rainbow a sign of? Right. It wasn't that he'd never destroy the earth again, was it? So it'll never flood the earth again. It was a promise, right? Um, so you got that. There's the first destruction with the flood. When would the next destruction be then, do you suppose? We've already considered it here tonight. In Second Peter, in chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, Beginning in verse 4. 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that when it existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay? Um, so here's what we have to understand. There's, there's, there's the flood. Uh, there's a period um, really at the time of his second coming prior to the millennial reign where there is destruction on the earth and then there is this uh, third period, as we're reading about here in Revelation 21. Um, now, there's debate over whether what 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 Peter's talking about there uh, is is at the time of his second coming before the millennial reign, or is at this particular time. Uh, the problem is, if you align that with Isaiah 65, Isaiah 65 actually talks about death still um, occurring. And so that gives us insight into probably that destruction that's being referred to is that time between the second coming and the millennial reign because people will still die during the millennial reign though their age, though their life expectancy will be greatly increased. People won't die in the time of eternity with a new heaven and a new earth, right? So we come to this place here then where we're seeing again that there is, uh, that the earth uh, and the heavens are destroyed. Now a question that a lot of people would ask is why the heavens? Why would he destroy the heavens? Well, in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, a passage of Scripture that many of you know well, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, where? In the heavenly places. <clears throat> do you know that there are three heavens? I see some of you nodding your heads. There's, th there's really three kind of ways in which we refer to heaven. Um, we get insight into that elsewhere through the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 12, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to where? The third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. Paul there is being humble. I know a guy. <laughs> I know a guy who was caught up to the third heaven. I'm not going to tell you who he was. <clears throat> but he says they're the third heaven. What are the three heavens? Well, there he's talking about, he said he went to the third heaven where he saw inexpressible things. Well, that you could also say is the throne room of heaven, the place where God dwells. You've got two other heavens, which are the atmospheric heavens, which is kind of within our atmosphere, and then you've got the galaxies. You've got space. So 
God can destroy a heaven or one of the heavens, and it's not going to be his throne room. He's not destroying his throne room. He's not destroying the, the galaxies, but he is destroying that place where the spiritual powers of darkness rule and reign, which is this earth currently, Satan being the prince of the power of the air. So there is going to be a heaven that is destroyed, but yet, as he says here, a new heaven of a different kind and a new earth of a different kind. But then he says, and then I saw, verse 2, the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And so he references here that there is a new heaven, a new one of a different kind, but yet it's coming down from one that still exists. And then we go on and we read here in, uh, in the rest of uh, really his description here, in verses 3 through 8, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Okay, so let's, we're just going to start to move through some of this stuff quickly. This is your description of new heaven and new earth. This is the place where ultimately you will spend more of your time, than ev- all, more time in a new heaven and new earth than anywhere else. However old you are here until you die and are raptured and then a thousand years in the millennial kingdom and none of that that will pale in comparison to the amount of time that you spend in what's being described here in these two chapters. Do you understand that? When you go somewhere, when you travel somewhere, when you buy a new house, how many of you said, I'm just going to go ahead and move to this city I've never been to and I'm going to go ahead and buy a house sight unseen? Some people have done it. But generally speaking, we want to know, where am I moving to? Where am I going to live? What's it look like? How's it going to function? What's it going to be near? How close are conveniences and all these different things? This is where you're going to spend more time than you can even begin to imagine. And here what he's saying is, God's going to be with you. We're going to be in his presence. The tabernacle of God is with men. He's going to be with us. He's going to dwell with us. You are going to live with God. Not just from a place of his Holy Spirit dwelling within you, but it's going to be like, hey God, how you doing? Good to see you this morning. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. You hear that? Cue it up. Cue up the sirens, right? That's not going to happen anymore. We're not going to hear that anymore. There's not going to be an emergency. There's not going to be a thought of an accident or a fire. No more. The former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new, new of a different kind. So it means that we can't even understand. We can sort of grasp, okay, this is something new, but yet it's new of a different kind. I can't even really compare it to anything I know today. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. Okay, so uh, to the righteous here is an inheritance. What we've been promised for all of eternity, he says, is going to be yours. There's going to be an incredible inheritance. And in verse 8, we read, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And what he's telling us here is there's not going to be any unholy people in eternity, in this eternal state. There's no bad guys. And then he goes on and he begins to describe the city here. The new Jerusalem, which is the city that we will live in. In verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me. So what John's saying here is, I I know this angel. He was part of the uh, tribulation period, and now he's come to me. 
and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And so now uh, we're seeing a little bit of a, a different verbiage here when now the city itself is being referred to as the bride, as the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I want to pause there for a moment. Note here with great detail, John is describing for us this city that he has seen. Yes, you could say, uh, or many argue that it is symbolic, but the fact is he's describing something here in detail. He's saying it's got foundations, it's got walls, it's got gates. Okay, uh, He's already said it's like a jasper stone with crystal, and we're going to see in the further description here that things that we would consider quite valuable today, that we would reserve and only be able to maybe afford a small amount of, is being used for the construction of the city. This gives us insight into God's economy and how much greater uh, the new heaven and the new earth will be than what we've experienced here. Notice further that he says as far as the gates, what's, whose names are on the gates? The 12 tribes of Israel. So remember, there's a distinction there, as I've already said. Even though, yes, we are together, he continues to maintain a distinction between his covenant people. And so the the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are on the gates, but what is the foundation made of or labeled as? The apostles. It's the church. It's the apostles who form the foundation of this city. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. So here now we get, I mean, we're now getting specifics here. We're getting measurements. The city is laid out, now now try to picture this if you can to the best of your ability, okay? The city is laid out as a square. We already know that there's high walls, there's gates, there's uh, layers of foundation, and it's laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. You all know what a furlong is, right? Its length, I'm kidding. Um, We'll come back to that. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Okay, so some of you are pretty good at math. What, What is it if its length, its breadth, and its height is equal? A cube, right? Or, I mean, you look at it as a square, but ultimately it's a, it's a cube, okay? So this is a big cube. It's long, it's deep, it's wide, it's high. Okay, this is a big cube. Some of you are thinking, man, I don't know about heaven. This is a giant cube with gates and foundations. The constructions of its wall was of jasper. What's jasper? It's a precious stone. It's walls. Its walls are made of it. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Anybody know anything about gold? Some of you know that gold can get almost like glass. And that is the finest gold to where you can almost sort of see through it. Okay? This, is, this is the highest quality gold. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. 
The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. The gates themselves were pearls. Anybody ever seen a pearl necklace? You think you could open one up and walk through it? Those little pearls? The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Every now and then I think, man, it might be time to fork out the $4,000 to lay down a new layer of sealant on our asphalt out here. You know, boy, that'll look nice when we do that. Whew, nice clean asphalt, new line stripe, people know where to park. I'm getting excited about asphalt. This is here, we're going to walk on gold. You're going to walk on gold. I'm, I'm appreciative of the fact that John describes some of the things that he does here, but I understand that it's difficult for us. For many of you, this is what we have. This is the authoritative word of God. This is, this is the best that we have, and it's wonderful. This is the description we have. But yet at the same time, if we really begin to, to consider it, and we really think about it, we meditate on it, which we should, because again, you're going to live there forever. And they begin to go, man, I want to understand this more. And, and um, I want to read, read this for you a minute here. Um, I've often mentioned to you Randy Alcorn. He wrote an incredible book called Heaven. And there's an excerpt from it I, I want to read for you. He says this, The city's exact dimensions are measured by an angel and reported to be 12,000 stadia or furlongs, the equivalent of, okay, so for those of you that aren't on the up and up with your furlongs, 1,400 miles, okay, or 2,200 kilometers. So 1,400 miles in length, width, and height. 1,400 miles. I want you to understand that. Anybody ever seen the Sears Tower in Chicago? At one point was the tallest building. I think it's probably in Dubai now or something like that. Anybody know how tall the Sears Tower was? Anybody? A mile. And it looks like it reaches to the heavens. 1,400 miles. Even though, he says, Alcorn writes this, even though these proportions may have symbolic importance, this doesn't mean that they can't be literal. In fact, Scripture emphasizes that the dimensions are given in man's measurement. If the city really has these dimensions, and there's no reason it couldn't, what more could we expect God to say to convince us? A metropolis of this size, okay, this is what I want you to start to understand. As you're going like, man, what about this cube? I don't know. A metropolis of this size in the middle of the United States would stretch from Canada to Mexico and from the Appalachian Mountains to the California border. Picture a map of the United States from Canada to Mexico, the edge of California to almost right about here. That's its, that's its measurement as you see on paper. Now if you're standing by it, it goes that same distance up. As he says, even more astounding in the cities is the city's 1,400 mile height. Some people suggest this is the reach of the city's tallest towers and spires rising above buildings of lesser height. If so, they argue that it's more like a pyramid than a cube. So some people like to say this is a pyramid. Other people say, I think it's a cube. He says, we don't need to worry that heaven will be crowded. The ground level of the city will be nearly 2 million square miles. This is 40 times bigger than England, 15,000 times bigger than London. It's 10 times as big as France or Germany, 
and far larger than India. But remember, that's just the ground floor. Given the dimensions of a 1,400-mile cube, if the city consisted of different levels, we don't know this for sure, and if each story were a generous 12 feet high, how many of you have 12-foot ceilings in your home? Not many, right? It's a good, it's a healthy ceiling height, okay? Even if each story were a generous 12 feet high, the city could have over 600,000 stories. Going to the top, right? It's got to be an awesome elevator right there. If they were on different levels, billions of people could occupy the New Jerusalem with, listen, many square miles per person. City dwelling doesn't sound too bad anymore, does it? You're thinking, I just want a few acres. How about a few square miles? If these numbers are figurative, not literal, and that is certainly possible, surely they are still meant to convey that the home of God's people will be extremely large and roomy. But I saw, verse 22, but I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So here now, temple through the millennial reign, no temple in the new heaven and new earth. Millennial reign, temple's there to point people to Jesus. Because there's still going to be a a rebellion. There's a reminder for people. This is what Jesus has done for you. In the new heaven and new earth, he's with us. We're just spending time with him. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. Now notice here, it doesn't say that there is no sun. We don't know that for sure. Oftentimes we say that, I've said that, but the fact is it says that there's no need of it. So we don't know exactly what that is, other than it says the glory of God illuminated it. Remember Jesus in the transfiguration on the mount as he gave uh, Peter, James, and John the opportunity to see him in his glory a little bit, and he, he pulls back his robe, and it begins to just illuminate everything? I don't know how that works. <laughs> but his glory is going to illuminate the new heaven and the new earth. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. It seems to suggest that, I mean, clearly here, no night, but also no sleep. I mean, if we even think about the way our bodies work today, why do we need sleep? Because they wear down. We've got to rest, right? And I know some of you are thinking, no naps in heaven? That's terrible. I love a nap. I don't know. We don't know that for sure. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall be no mean there but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river. This is chapter twenty two, verse one, and he showed me a pure river of water of life. So there's no sea, but some people will say, Well, maybe because of the way in which the earth is covered. You know, the majority of the earth today is covered in sea that doesn't necessarily mean there's no bodies of water, but that it's not vast expanses of water like that. Certainly we have a, a, a river. We don't, we don't know for sure. It says this river of water of life clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. So the tree of life's back. And it bears, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever 
and ever. Folks, that's the description that we have of this place where we will spend eternity as believers. It's pretty incredible. Yes, beyond our comprehension, but yet also in a way where we can start to get a taste of it, get a picture of it. And as we close here tonight, I want us to consider the remainder of the chapter because this is the really important part for us. And really what answers the question that we've been considering throughout this entire study is, how shall we live in light of his soon return? And then he said to me in verse 6, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And so we must see here that uh, one of the first exhortations to us is keep the word. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And so we're obedient to Scripture. We worship Him. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And so we ought to live continually and into eternity pure lives that are righteous before him. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments. There it is again, obedience, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires let him take the water of life freely and i believe this is an exhortation for us to have a heart towards evangelism still today for i testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to these things god will add to him the plagues that are written in this book and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy god shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book he who testifies to these things says surely i am coming quickly Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And so we say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come, because we look forward to what it is that he has in store for us. But until that time, we preach the word, we're obedient to it, and we seek to save the lost in his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we pause here tonight, and again, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, we admit it, uh, it is beyond our comprehension in some respects, Lord, but we thank you for it. And we recognize, Lord, as we sit and we meditate and we pray and we consider and we read through Scripture, Lord, the, the answers are there. We get insight, Lord, and we thank you that you've given us a taste, a glimpse, Lord, of what is in store for us for eternity. Enough, Lord, uh, to cause us to, to want more, to desire it more. And I pray that would be the case for each and every heart here tonight and those watching online. Uh, Lord, give us a hunger and thirst for you. And remind us, Lord, daily that indeed you are coming quickly and for us to be obedient. Um, and, uh, and in constant pursuit of you, that we would all have hearts, Lord, that say, come, Lord Jesus. Uh, so do that work in us, Lord, we pray. And I pray for each of these here tonight as they follow after you, Lord. Bless them and keep them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.